Evans Church. We've got the McClintocks going. we got two kids? Oh, okay, okay. There's that one. If you'll turn with me in your copy of the scriptures, or you'll find it also in your program this morning, we're in Colossians and we're going to conclude Colossians this morning. We're going to be looking at Paul's uh, request and for prayer. And that's how he concludes the book. He concludes by asking the church in Colossae, small congregation, young church plant, very, very similar to us. He asked them to pray for him because he's found in prison. As they receive this letter from him, he's in prison. He's writing to encourage them. And so he asks finally for prayer and that the letter also be read to a neighboring church, Laodicea, and that he gives his thanks. Let me begin reading with verse 2 out of Colossians 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward ourselves, toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychius will tell you about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Anisimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, who we believe incidentally to be the pastor of this congregation, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he's worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter's been read among you, have it also read at the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I, uh, when was the first time that you prayed? Do you remember? If you're a Christian this morning, when was the first time that you actually either knelt or fell on your face or you bowed your, your, your head, you, you clasped your hands, maybe with raised face, but you assumed a posture, you found a place, 
and you spoke from your heart to God. When was the first time you did that? It is, I can remember it was 1979. I was in the barracks at the Citadel, and I had a number of conflicts at that time uh, in my life. I had a number of issues that were confronting me, and I didn't know where to go. And an upperclassman had reminded me when I went to him, and I said, okay, talk to me about Christianity. Instead of talking to me about Christianity, he reminded me that in our idiot bag, which is what they called it when you first got there, you had this bag, and they would, you couldn't talk, so they'd put stuff in it. And uh, he said, he reminded me that in my idiot bag, they had placed a Bible. And it was good news for modern man. Now, good news for modern man, to those of you that are not familiar, it has pictures in it, okay? It's a modern translation of the New Testament only, and it has stick figures. And so I didn't know how to read a Bible, so I read the introduction, I read the table of contents, and the first book that I came to was the book of Matthew. By the time I got to Matthew 6, after the Sermon on the Mount, I'd been introduced to Jesus and his genealogy, but in Matthew 6 is where Jesus introduced the Lord's Prayer to his disciples. The Lord's Prayer, as we have prayed earlier, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, became my prayer to receive Christ. Because I liked what it said. I'd always been a little concerned because I thought Christians were very showy. I went, I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, and there was a, a fundamental Christian college there, and, and I, I got a lot of my impressions of what Christians were like from that school. And so I always thought Christians were pretty loud and pretty judgmental. Not that that school was all that, but I had in my narrow mind an image that I didn't like. But here, I read in Matthew 6, Jesus' instructions as to how to pray. He said, when you pray, don't be showy, don't be real public, but go to a closet, go to a small room, and talk to your Father. He sees you. He sees you in secret, and He will hear you in secret, and speak to Him, and He will answer. And... I was thinking about it, and there on the page was a stick figure. And you know, stick figures have no hair. So that was appropriate. I had no hair. And the stick figure was kneeling next to a cot. And I had a cot. And so I said, I can pray. And so I knelt beside that cot, and almost with one eye open, never having prayed before, other than those emergencies, Lord, please don't get me, let me get caught by the cops. I'll give you my whole life. I'll go to China. You know, that kind of prayer. Other than that one, I had never really prayed. And I prayed and I said, God, I don't have anywhere else to go. And I don't know much about you. But I sure want a father. And if you'd be my daddy, I ain't much. I ain't much at all. But I'll give you my life. I'll be your boy. Now, that was not sophisticated. When I got to seminary, after three years of working on my master's in theology, I would look back at that and I would say, how oh, infinite. You know, that's, that's, that's not very theological. That's not very proper. I've been taught now how to lead worship. And so that was, that was just so elementary. But I find over and over and over and over again 
when prayer has, as it were, just kind of dried up in my life. And my prayers, they may be very proper in their enunciation and its theology, but they're just so dry. They're just so dead in their experience that I go back and I pray, God, I don't understand you in all your ways, but if you'll be my father, I'll be your boy. The Apostle Paul comes to us this morning and he uses some very interesting language to invite and solicit the church in Colossae to invite other people to join him and perhaps others in praying. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. In other words, don't stop. Be Focus, be disciplined, be regular, be systematic, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And that word caught my attention this week. Being watchful with thanksgiving. What does that mean? Because that's what Paul is asking us to do, not simply for him, but in all of our prayer life. And perhaps that that is the reason that we struggle so with prayer is that we are not watchful. And so it's a fresh call this morning to be watchful in our prayer. And uh, by the way, I have found that an alternative from the world to praying, because they really don't understand what Christians are doing in prayer, because it just seems a little too religious to them perhaps, or mechanical. Or they would go to other churches, and I'm talking about the Presbyterian church, who is so mechanical and and religious that they can't relate. They might go to other churches, and it seems to be so emotional and so freewheeling, so mystical get up and dance, that it's just too scary. But they don't believe that our prayers are actually a relational connection that our prayers are actually taking the pieces of my life and in a conversation presenting the pieces of my life before God. They don't understand that. So here's what they'll offer as a substitute. Talk to yourself. Talk to yourself. Look in a mirror and say, Self, we're going to have a great day. Self, Looking good. Self, you're going to get that job. And so that's the way that the world would suggest that you pray. That instead of talking to God, which they don't understand, you talk to yourself. Paul doesn't encourage the Colossian church at all to talk to themselves because he knows. He knows that at heart is a problem. That our self is not able in its condition, even on its best days, to resolve any number of issues that we face. Our lives, we face our world, we face trial, suffering, and temptation like small children. And we're as helpless to open the door that Paul is talking and asking prayers that would be open as a child is opening huge barn doors by themselves. And yet he doesn't condemn us in our helplessness. 
what Paul would challenge us is that God in our helplessness would have us turn to Him, not to self, nor even to others, but to turn to the Father. Like a child would look for help in a natural relationship to a parent, particularly a father, then we are to look to God for assistance and also to give thanks in prayer. Okay, now that's the sermon. That's the Episcopal sermon. So you've got your sermon through your belt, and we're ready to uh, close the service with the Lord's Supper and uh, be early for lunch. But since we're Presbyterian, and since we uh, want a little bit more, we want to do a little bit more digging, and we want some application, we want to work it out, I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles and stay with me and look over to uh, James chapter... Well, let's not look at James first. Let's look at John 14. John 14, 14. Jesus makes in John 14, 14 what seems to be an extraordinary, an extraordinary uh, promise to us. An offer that is... It, it, it's, it's just incredible. He says in John 14, 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So why don't we ask? I want to show you this morning that there's, there's two sides. If you've got an outline in your bulletin this morning, you'll see that there's a, a let's call it a mountain path. And it's pretty steep, and yet it's very, it's got huge cliffs on either side. And that mountain path is good asking, or how to properly ask God in prayer for the things that we need and the assistance that we need in the helplessness of our life. But on one cliff, one cliff edge, is that we don't ask. We don't take Jesus up on his promise or offer of John 14, 14. We simply have stopped praying. We simply don't pray at all. But the other cliff, the other danger, is that we ask selfishly. We don't ask properly. We don't ask with the right heart or the right motive. We, we ask, as it would say in James 4, verse 3, we ask with the wrong motives. We ask really to serve ourselves rather than to serve God in his interests. So I want to show you this morning, first of all, the problem of not asking. Then I want to show you an inadequate solution of asking selfishly. And then third, I want to show you the good solution, which is to ask with the person of Christ, both in mind and through the person of Christ interceding and through the medium of Christ in his name. For you see, in John 14, uh, if you look at John 14, 13, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So a good way to know the proper motives is, what brings the Son glory? What pleases Jesus? And by the way, I'm going to get to this, and I'm going to touch on it in just a moment. Don't simply think ministry. Don't simply think that the things that please the Son are going to be the bigger issues of his kingdom. It can be as small as finding a parking space. 
It can be as small, the things that glorify the Son. It's when we in our helplessness look to Him and say, please, Lord, help the baby not to cry tonight at 2.30 in the morning. It can be, Lord, You know how hard it's going to be for me to work today because I'm in physical pain. Would You please, Lord, help me? God, the Son, is glorified when we look to Him. So don't simply put prayers that are adequately and unselfishly asked just in the great ministry category. Okay? Okay. So, first of all, the problem. You look at Colossians there, and Paul says, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. The word literally in the Greek is Gregory, from which we get the proper name Gregory. Gregory. And Gregory means to be either watchful or wakeful. So, if you were tonight, if we were to um, set up a guard, if we were to be someplace that we needed to take turns and a couple of the men would have watch stations at night and they would be on watch, and we would have one of our men, kind of the captain of the guard, who would go at regular times to just check and make sure that the guard stationed out there on the perimeter are awake, he might call out, Gregory? Or he might listen and say, are you there? And they would chant back, Gregory. And it means, I am awake. I remain alert. I am watchful. So, Gregory, I'm watchful. I'm on it. I'm awake. I'm alert to it. So what Paul is literally saying here is when you are in prayer, stay awake. And in the process of prayer, be watchful. Why are you praying what you're praying? What is God doing in your life right now that is even prompting you to pray? What is, what is at work in your life that's driving you to pray? That difficult workmate, I, Lord, she is just, oh, she's just a pain. She is so difficult to be around. I mean, she opens her mouth and it's just like, you know, fingernails on a chalkboard. And so that's why I'm praying. But in the process, you realize that she's not really the difficult person. It's not really about her. It's really about you. Because that difficult person, you don't like her because she constantly gets in the way of something that you want. And you realize now that as you pray, that it's something that God the Father is wanting to do in your life and to change you so that you'll be transformed as his daughter and his image bearer in the workplace. So watchful can be not only simply an answer, watching for an answer, but watching the whole story as it unfolds. Why am I praying this? And what is it that God is wanting to do here? And I'm praying and I become increasingly open to an answer perhaps that I never realized before. You know what worry is, by the way? I figured this out last week. Worry is being anxious over the answer that I fear God would give if I prayed about it. Worry is being anxious over the answer that God would give, I fear, if I prayed about it. You know? I mean, I could pray, Lord, I just wish I didn't have all these bills. And the next thing you know, I'm living single wide in a trailer park. And I don't have near the bills that I have, but I don't have the life that I have. So I worry about it. 
because I'm caught between a hard place, because I'm not praying about it, I just don't pray about it because I don't want God's answer, and then I can't resolve it in my own, out of my own helplessness, my own position. What he's calling us to do is to be wakeful or watchful. A couple of side verses here, because every commentary that I read on this, every Bible scholar that I read on this, they said nothing about being watchful, which is the proper translation. They all emphasized wakefulness. They emphasized wakefulness out of uh, Luke 9, verse 32, where the disciples literally fall asleep at the Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, Jesus Christ, it says he appeared with clothes like lightning. Now, you know, I don't know what that looks like, but I don't think I'm going to go asleep in that. But they were tired and they were weary and they just, they had a hard time even staying awake as Christ has on one side Elijah and another side Moses. Another instance, Matthew 26, verse 40. Very famous passage. Matthew 26, verse 40, is where Jesus Christ looks at them and he has asked them to stay awake with him and to pray. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? So the commentators emphasize that there's just times that you just don't pray because you're tired. You know, maybe you have the habit of praying before you go to sleep. Best habit you could ever have to pray with your mate before you go to sleep or to pray with your children before they go to sleep. And you just find yourself dozing off before the other one gets to bed or dozing off or just a little too tired to make it up the stairs or across the house to, to pray. Not tonight, you say. I'm just weary. So the commentaries emphasize what Jesus Christ did there in Matthew 26, verse 41. He said, could you not stay awake an hour and pray because, you know, it will guard you against temptation, but ah, the flesh is so weak. So it could be that. Barclay, in his commentary, makes this statement. It is true that at the end of a hard day's sleep, often sleep, I mean, at the end of a hard day, sleep often comes upon us when we try to pray. So is that what Paul means? And even oftener, there is, a, there is in our prayers a kind of tiredness. At such time, we should not try to be long. God will understand the single sentence uttered in the manner of a child that is too tired to stay awake. So, is it that we're simply physically tired? Is that why we stop praying? Maybe. But I like what Barclay says, that there is a sense of tiredness that is in many of our prayers that has prompted us to stop praying. I believe that that tiredness in our prayers entered into our conversations with God, which is what prayers are. Prayers are taking the pieces of our life and conversation presenting them to God. I believe that tiredness in our prayers entered at the fall. When Adam and Eve were first created, prior to their succumbing to temptation and their separation from God, I believe they had a wonderfully conversant life with one another and with God. But since then, since then, it's as if our antenna 
is either bent or it's broken. Now, I drive Wendy nuts on Saturday when I work in the yard. I have a radio that I will put out somewhere. Sometimes I can't even hear it because the lawnmower is just blaring, but there, there are intermittent times that I'm able to hear the radio, and it's so much noise in the background. But the radio can lose, as it were, because of the wind. It just needs to be fine-tuned. It can just go to almost static. So the song is half song and half static, and you might even catch two radio stations debating with one another at one time. And Wendy's like, you're not listening to it. All it is is static, so why don't you turn it off? And I'm like, I don't know. Here, adjust it. Now it's fine. Ten minutes later, it's got static again. And I just keep bending the antenna, hoping that I can catch it long enough to hear and get through a song. I think that's many of our responses, is that we pray, but it's like our antenna is broken, and they're static. God, did you speak? Or God, did I get that right? Oh, why bother? We just get so frustrated because our prayers just seem getting through. Like so much static, it's not getting through. Or we, we seldom are watchful for any answers. We can't even remember the last time we saw an answer. So the reception is broken. So what are we going to do with this problem of not praying? Well, James 4, verse 3, says this. Well, let me read verse uh, 2 as, as well as 3. You desire and you do not have. Okay? We desire real answers to our prayer. We desire real answer to the difficulties that we face in our life. So you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight, you quarrel, you talk to yourself. You, do a, you look to a lot of resources to get the things that you want. You do not have because you do not ask, and that's a problem. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, I am not, because of the sake of time, going to elaborate on selfish asking for foolish things for pure pleasure and a life of ease and as a Christian. In other words, I'm not going to address the looking to God to be a genie. Okay? Which, by the way, did you hear the one about the genie? The guy found a bottle. Genie comes out. Genie says, okay, you get three wishes. And the guy says, you're darn right I get three wishes. In fact, you're mine. I could tell you to do anything I want you to do. You've got to do it. Well, the genie had tried to be nice, but this guy's a jerk. He says, okay, what's your first wish? He says, man, I want some money in my pocket. I don't want it in a bank. I mean, I want it in my pocket. In fact, I don't, the way the dollar's being devalued, I don't know that, the, that we're even going to have concurrency anymore. So I want a thousand gold bars. I want a thousand gold bars and I want it here right now. That's what the genie says. Okay, thousand gold bars. Boom! Right on top of the guy. Boom! Killed him. Boom! Right there. He says, you didn't say where. That's about as close to your pocket as I can get. So, we don't, we don't look to God as a genie. We don't, we don't look to him and say, you know what? I don't want a mortgage. 
I mean, properly speaking in the sense of we don't, we don't look to God and say, God, I, I want to win the lottery. God, I, I want you to make my marriage perfect, absolutely perfect. Not again, asking properly, asking for transformation in these things, but asking just for purely selfish reasons for ease. So we, we're aware that you don't simply pray for a red Corvette in your driveway soon. Okay, we, we don't look to God like a genie. But, on the other hand, asking for selfish desires and asking improperly is not to be impersonal. This is the fault that I find a lot of times with Presbyterians for some reason. Uh, and I find this... Um, also, sometimes with a, with a lot of Catholics, I'm not sure what the relationship is. But here's what I hear. You know, you've got to ask, like just this passage right here in uh, Colossians. Paul says, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Here's what I hear. Asking properly, asking unselfishly sounds like this. I'm only praying for God's word to go forward. I'm only praying for the blessings of Two Rivers Presbyterian Church. I'm only praying for Pastor Phil, which is great. But I'm only praying for ministry types and ministry issues. I'm not going to pray for parking spaces and crying babies and difficulties with my mate. That's just too personal, you know? You've got to pray for king, his kingdom stuff and, 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 and kingdom-oriented stuff and not the little trivia of my life. And I want to tell you that that will defeat your prayers. And that is not at all what Paul is asking. And that is not, it is not asking selfishly to ask things that are of a personal nature. Because that does bring glory to the Son. What does Paul say? Look at verse 4. It's a little subtle. But he says, That I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Commentators say that he's, probably referring to he wasn't the best of speakers. More of a Jonathan Edwards, you know, just a brainiac. And he just, he understood the mind of Christ. He got the gospel. It was so clear. I mean, he understood that he was called to speak this rich gospel where the Gentiles who had always been away and separated from God were now being brought in through, through Jesus Christ. And the Jewish people, that they were being reunited with these people that had been separated from God such that, that, that people who were not God's children could now be God's children. And he, he was able to articulate that like nobody else. As far as being a winsome preacher, even in Corinthians, he will say often enough, he will say, I know my speech leaves a lot to be desired. So what he's saying is, pray that even my talking, even my, my accent, even my way of delivery would be nice. That it'd be clear. Like it really ought to be. I really want it to be. See what he's doing? He's, he's saying, God, I'm asking you because you're big and you're infinite. I'm asking you for the big things. Open doors to do ministry to the world. That's big. But I'm also asking that you help the way I sound. Very, very personal. And so some of us don't ask correctly because we're only asking for big ministry-related things and we poo-poo someone when they say, you know, I've got to have bunion surgery, and I don't know which one to get. And we think that's silly, but it's not silly to God. 
And that ought to shape how we pray so that we're not just theologians praying. We're just people, we're just bringing stuff with them. And it will cause you, if you see it in that light, if you see God so tender, so personal to you, really, Papa, Father, Daddy, then you'll begin to um, pray a lot more. So an inadequate solution is simply pray either about the big stuff or pray about ministry-related stuff, you know, pray about church stuff and kingdom stuff. Oh, yeah, we should pray about that. But it's an inadequate solution because we never really get to that position of a child who prays in a relationship with God. We just kind of keep it religious. So what's the solution? How are we going to do it? Okay, I've got to give this very quickly because I've got a couple of applications that I want to just mention to you in passing. The solution, of course, is, to, is good asking. And the way that we ask good, if you look at that passage in Galatians on your outline, is that we ask through the person of Jesus Christ, our role and status has changed. We are now sons and daughters of God on high. And so we look to Jesus Christ as both our model and our intercessor, or another way to say it, our big brother. I got a big brother, and he talks very well. He's got everything together before the Father, and he's looking after me as little brother, little sister. So Jesus is my model. How did Jesus pray? Uh, John 5, 19. The Son can do nothing of his own cord. John 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. Jesus did not live life on his own. Now, he's not helpless like we're helpless, but he's in such an intimate relationship with the Father. He didn't do life alone. He didn't do life without conversation. He didn't do life without relationship with the Father. Prayer now begins to make sense because it's a relationship. We're trying to do life on our own. And if we're not trying to do life on our own, I mean, if we're trying to do life on our own, then why bother to pray? We stop praying. I'm doing, I, I'm handling it. And then if we, an inadequate solution is that, okay, I let the elders pray for me, or I let Pastor Pills pray for me, I let the theologians handle it, I let the... I let the, the spiritual uh, elite handle it because I just mess it up. That's an inadequate solution. The model is a child speaking to the Father, and that's what Christ modeled before us. Oh, this last week, I about lost it, i got to tell you. I about lost it. I, um, uh, Lynn Earle had been talking to Frankie Watson, and she said, the good ones are now in uh, Charleston, but there's a problem. Georgia is in the pediatric intensive care being treated for pneumonia. Would you please, so Lynn contacted Hannah Ball to get that out on our prayer email, which if you're not on that, give us your email address. And so I said, man, I need to, I need to get over there. So I got over to the hospital, and I went to the ICU waiting room, and there was Elizabeth. They had been there for a number of hours now, and yet they hadn't met with the doctor. I mean, they'd been there, and they got her set up, and they were. she was waiting for the doctors to call her in and tell her what they had begun on her daughter, uh, Georgia. And so while I'm talking with Elizabeth, the doctor came out and said, hey, we can take you back now. And so, I, I, you know, that's a sensitive moment, but Elizabeth said, please, come on with me. You know, you're our pastor. So I'm like, okay. So 
I, I go in there, and uh, Georgia, she's absolutely beautiful. She's absolutely beautiful. To her mother's eyes, she looks like she's got bruises under her eyes. She's got tubes, you know, all these wires and everything. And, and, she's, and uh, they had to intubate her. And so she's, she's looking pretty rough to her mother's eyes, but to me she looks absolutely beautiful. And so Elizabeth was talking to me and talking to the doctors and, and everything. And at one point she was talking to the doctor, and I was not aware. I had forgotten, I guess, that Sam is the, the, the bone marrow transplant donor. And what that means, as Elizabeth and the doctor were talking, is that it creates this interesting dilemma because, as you know, bone marrow produces blood, and your DNA is in your blood, okay? Now, as best I could determine from what they're saying is that because of the infusion of the father to the daughter, that the daughter will have the same DNA as the father. That's what I got. Because they were joking about that if uh, Sam ever uh, lost it and lost his mind and committed a crime and they did a DNA swab, that they'd probably pull in Georgia as well as him. And I thought, what an illustration. What a picture of what God does. And he says in prayer, you're not second class. That my son, was he had a relationship with me and I loved it. He brought all of life to me. He didn't live life even. He's God and he didn't live life on his own. Because prayer was not mechanical religious stuff. It was a relationship. And he didn't have to get all the words in the right order or have to get all the words right or have to include all these things for it to be proper. You just talk like a little kid to God, who's your father. And now, as it was with Jesus, it is infused to those of us who have come to receive Christ now in a relationship with him. And he becomes not only in us, so that when we pray, we're heard, but that we're to pray with that same mindset, that I don't do life on my own, because I don't do life very well on my own. And I can pray for the small things of my day, and I can pray about the big things of the ministry. I can, I can be like a little kid, and I can just chat a while, chat, 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 chat about the most inane things in prayer. I can write my prayers in a prayer journal. Or I can, uh, I can sing them in a hymn, or I can take a psalm and I can put my own words into it, or I can just simply, as I began in 1979, even with a word, I can say, Father. And that's a prayer. All right, I got to go. We got to have a table. Three things if you're taking notes. And I cannot, I cannot elaborate. Three things, three things I want you to think about to do. Number one, I want you to consider asking, inviting, even pleading with other people to pray with you. Paul does it. Paul does it. And not simply the big things. Okay? Invite other people. Invite other people. Don't worry. Don't worry about how God's going to answer it or what he's going to do. Don't worry about your faith being small. Don't worry about that not being very humble or anything like that. Ask others. Number two, learn again to pray simple, sentence prayers like a child throughout the day. I think that's where it begins to get into unceasing steadfastness. You know, I live with a one-year-old now, and it's amazing. As she, I don't think she's, 
talking. Anyway, she might be talking. She says certain words that we're starting to clue in and we're starting to understand. But uh, she's, she's, she's doing this babble thing, and she's having a perfectly good conversation, but nobody understands what she's saying. She might even be singing, you know. But being a grandfather, I really dig it. I don't understand it, but I like it, you know. I like the sound of it. And one-year-olds are not necessarily, and I, I assume that they go on, are not necessarily quiet all day, and they don't just speak it at breakfast, and that's the only time during the day. They don't say, they don't say anything else the rest of the day. Did I catch it? No. Be more like a little child. Um, even if all your prayer, it just starts with one word, Papa, Daddy, Father. Number three, learn that suffering in your life, whether it is physical or it is mental or it's emotional, even that spiritual separation or alienation that you feel with God is an invitation to pray. Let suffering drive you to prayer. Do not let suffering drive you away. And then as you begin to pray, you may learn, as Paul suggests, you may learn even to give thanks because it is that that has brought you back and it is that area of your life. Your mind tends to wander to that place that we're the most weary. Why? Because we're trying to speak to ourselves or we're trying to solve it. But if we're like a little child, I realize I can't handle these difficulties and God is just, his shoulders are made just big enough to bring them to me. It's interesting, Paul prays about this open door, but he says, remember my chains? You know, it's very, very interesting. The open door for Paul was actually his chains. He was chained to a Roman guard. He, he was chained so that whenever he went about, he's got this guy, when he's writing his letters, he's dictating them. This Roman guard is here all the gospel being dictated to him. It will go, he will eventually, because of his imprisonment, he will eventually get to Rome. He will eventually, he has a, he has a bully pulpit, as it were, because of his suffering. So as he's beginning to pray for an open door, it's not a life of ease, but he begins to see the answer. He really begins to see the answer. So let your suffering... Let your suffering drive you back to God and begin to pray through that and you'll experience a transformation. Let's pray. Father, you wanted an open door into our life and we long for a way and a means, despite our sin, to return to you, to enter into your home, even the promise of heaven to be your family members and to be your children, but oh, that door was closed. But you answered the prayer of your people and their spiritual bondage with an open door. Even your son, Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door, and you enter through me. But it's through his brokenness. It's through his suffering. So, Father, even as we look to this table, with its broken bread and its poured out wine, we see an open door. We see an answer to our prayers. We see a way that, that we can pray that you would continue to break us away from sin, that you would continue to pour our life out in joyful service and obedience and transformation to become more like your Son, Jesus Christ. So we pray this 
And even by the actions of taking these elements, we would look for the answer. We would watch. We would watch as the story continues to unfold in our life of the open door set before us, of us walking through that open door, Father, and all that made possible because of the gospel in Jesus. To this end we pray in Christ's name. Amen. On the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed, he did indeed take bread, and after giving thanks as we have done, he broke it and said,